and welcome to episode nine of Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. This week we have an amazing guest. He's chosen an incredible film and it comes with recommendations of uh, Mr. Quentin Tarantino himself, so no bad thing. Um, his name is Dr. Pete Falconer and he is a senior lecturer at the University of Bristol Film Department. And I'm just looking through the Emporium's window now and yeah, he's coming down, striding away manfully. Oh yeah, and here he is. Hello, hello, okay. Toby. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here in in your emporium. Thank you very much indeed. Please take a seat in one of the elegant uh, leather-bound wing-back chairs, which we always have for guests. Yeah, that you really you really can't put a price on that sort of service. Uh, well, unfortunately, Dodgy Dave down at Dodgy Dave's Furniture Emporium did, and you know it was a lot of anyway. We won't go into that. But do do um, you have do you have an uh, Emporium proprietor group chat that you will go on? Oh well, that would be telling, but you know it's just me and Dodgy Dave at the moment. But you okay. know, who knows where okay. we'll end up? So yeah, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. So Pete, I see under your arm you have a particular a, a what would you like to say a boomerang shaped film to give the listeners both of them uh, a hint of what is inside. What have you brought us today? Okay, so the film I've brought uh, for today is is called Turkey Shoot. It it is a part of the group of films that sometimes get referred to as Ozploitation. It's an Australian exploitation film. It was directed by Brian Tranchard Smith, and it was released in October nineteen eighty two, much like I was. Um, it's a variation on the most dangerous game scenario, um, the the familiar thing re repeated off across many different films, of course about people hunting other people. Uh, it's set in a dystopian future where anyone labelled criminal or deviant is sent to re-education camps and five inmates from one such camp are chosen to be hunted by the chief warden, a government minister and other members of the social elite. Mm. So just to make this absolutely clear, the the film's release and your so-called release of the world, there's just a bit of a coincidence really, isn't it? Yeah, yes, I believe so. I think it it, it, uh, it came out uh, earlier in other countries. I was taking it, it its release date in its native Australia. I, I believe it took it took yeah it, it was released in some weird country because exploitation films always have these weird distribution deals and they mm. like come out in Norway first or something like that. Um, but yes, but yeah, uh, as far as I am aware. Uh, my uh, my parents, uh, an, an English teacher and a biology teacher in early 80s Southampton, had nothing to do with the Australian B-film industry, but uh, you never know. Yeah, I just want to make that absolutely clear. So I think that's answered that question. So thank you, Peter, for that. So moving on, we always check with our Emporium guests. Um, really, it's the sort of basic question. So what's was the very first film you saw and you remember seeing at the cinema and where and when was it right so uh there's a slight compound answer here and again actually you know having referred to my parents i'm going to talk about them a little bit more uh when i was quite small probably about three years old uh my dad took me to a couple of re-released disney movies oh in the mid 80s at the long gone Mountbatten Theatre in Southampton, which I believe uh, it was sort of enveloped in the Southampton Solent University campus uh, somewhere. And I remember watching Cinderella and Snow White. There might have been others too. Uh, but I think that the first new release I saw at the cinema was um, Bowie Muppet's classic Labyrinth oh, uh, in the autumn of 1986. Not long after my baby sister was born, my baby sister who turned 34 last week. Uh, shout out to Jenny Falconer. Congratulations uh, to you, Pete Sister. So, uh, what do you remember from the film? Were you scared by it, excited by it, or was it enthralling? Yeah, I, 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 well, all of them I was, I, I was enthralled by. I, I remember finding the kind of music and romance moments in the Disney films less compelling than the adventure and comedy moments because you know seeing it through the eyes of a of a three-year-old boy uh labyrinth i just you know i found endlessly engrossing um i a lot of people of my age i think grew up with labyrinth i think mm. it's it's a sort of a a foundational movie for what i would class as older millennials mm. um yeah. 
you know, the, 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 the sort of the decaying end of the millennial uh, generation, people born in the kind of early to mid 80s. Um, yeah, it doesn't quite a number of women of my generation, including kind of like uh, sort of yeah, women that I've been involved with and things like that in the past. Uh, Labyrinth was foundational for them in a very different way, shall we say? Uh, because yeah, uh, uh, it, it it is that sort of Angela Carter psychosexual coming of age story, uh, aided and abetted by Bowie's uh, you know exquisite eyeliner and crotch bulge. Indeed. So yes. that dimension was was lost on my uh, on my on my male four-year-old self uh but but yeah i absolutely loved it uh, did you have a crush on um on sarah no no i was i i was still very much in the sort of um girls are yucky um well in so far well no like romance and, and sort of human sexuality and so far as i was aware of it at the age of four was yucky mm. i mean girls were all right i liked like the girls in my class and at my play school and stuff like that i think you know a lot of my closest friends at that age or, or i didn't really differentiate very much uh, in terms of the, the sex of my playmates uh but no like i i i guess Quite a lot of the resonances of Labyrinth were lost on me at, the, at that age, but I thought it was I thought it was hilarious and magical, and I think that did the job. Mm. Were you quite scared as well? Because there's goblins in it. There's you know some quite sort of quite dreamlike but quite scary moments as well for a four-year-old. Mm, I, I I think I think I just like the puppets. I think like even even the scary puppets are still Muppets. Mm, like they're they're no more. They're no more grotesque than your neighbour's French bulldog or something like that. <laughs> Good point, well made. Hmm. So, we have Labyrinth at four years old. So, what was the film that you remember actually that actually lit a fire under you that actually got you thinking, do you know what, I want to I wanna get more involved with film. Do you remember what, any, any particular watershed? Moment? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm going to switch parents here. It was my dad that took me to those early movies. And often my dad would take me to kids movies when I was little and I would look across at him an hour later and he would be napping because it's a warm, dark room. He, he would he would go to something that would amuse me while, while he could doze. Um, whereas my watershed film and to this day, I would say, is my absolute favourite film. Um, I owe my exposure of it to my other parent, my mother. Um, yeah, at some point when I was about 17 or 18, I think it was like a Sunday night or something like that. I was at college. I was you know, going to go to college the next day and everything like that. I didn't really have any plans, it being like a Sunday evening. Uh, and my mum basically said, come on, get your coat. We're going out. We're going to the uh, cinema. There's a film I want to show you. And I went to the, we went to the Harbour Lights uh, cinema, the the little art cinema, on uh, you know, on on the harbour in Southampton, um, lovely little cinema, um, uh, and what was on was uh, the Night of the Hunter, uh, oh, Charles Lawton's only ever film. Yes. And yes. you know, Robert's, if um, uh, Mitchum's famous uh, story about love and hate. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. With mm -hmm. with Mitchum as this. Uh, charismatically demonic um embodiment of evil as a kind of evangelical hellfire preacher um versus Lillian Gish as righteous fairy tale grandmother uh you know uh fighting for the souls of two little kids almost um and and yeah that like if labyrinth was magical to my four-year-old self this was a whole different kind of magic this was kind of deep and dark and heady and southern gothic and a bit of film noir in there and a bit of william faulkner in there um and yeah i mean at, at like i i have uh i have a, a fat you know as as a as a fan of as a fan of many things as a fan of old american movies and old american music uh i i have a kind of deep and abiding love of americana but no film gives americana that sort of exotic amplification that the night of the hunter does and 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 as 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 a european as a brit who kind of sees america as as kind of exotic anyway uh this was just sort of taking it to the next level mm, wonderful 
So did that um, affect your choice of um, university courses when you when you went on to higher education? Yes, it definitely did. And I was kind of, I was getting into film at that time anyway. And that's why I think my mum took me to see this movie because it was a movie that had meant something to her when she'd seen it at an earlier stage, perhaps when she was a member of the University of Greenwich Film Studies, uh, not film studies, like film society, student union film society in the early seventies or something like that, um, or some other point. Um, and she knew that my kind of budding cinephile sensibility might well respond to this um and she was right, and, of course. <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely and um she yeah i was getting more and more into films at that time and i was applying to go to university so like yeah it was exactly the right time to spark that kind of thing i ended up studying film and literature at the university of warwick and found myself really loving the film side of my course. I mean, I still love literature as well. And the literature side of my course was very well taught uh, as well. You know, the credit where credit's due, but it was the film half of my course that I, uh, that I really, really fell in love with. Mm. And I remember there was a moment um, in my first year where I had, well, I had a seminar tutor for my film criticism class um, at, uh, yeah, first year film criticism class uh, Tamar Jeffers, as she was then, Tamar Jeffers MacDonald, she is now a lecturer at the uh, University of Kent now. She was a PhD student at Warwick at the time. Mm -hmm. And she was my favourite seminar tutor in my first year because like, we, we had a very good rapport. We were able to get into some really detailed analysis, but we were also able to kind of joke around and kind of uh, make kind of arch and wry remarks and things like that. Um, film studies too seriously. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And she had... Uh, she had just given me um, a, a a very I was, I was very pleased with the mark that I'd gotten on the essay that I'd uh, handed in, and I think a couple of weeks later I ran into her on the train. I, I was I was on a train at that time, and she was on the same train, and we started chatting, and she said, "So, do you want to be a film academic then?" <laughs> because she's like, "Well, yeah, your your writing obviously shows those kind of aspirations." I was like, That's "What?" Quite a compliment. That's not everything. It's not every day you get that sort of. No, no, no. She, yeah, she, she thought that she thought that was obviously a career aspiration of mine, and that was the first time I kind of thought about it seriously. Mm. Um, and the more I analysed film in, in a detailed and complex way in Tamar's classes and lots of other classes at Warwick, and just kind of in chats with my friends. I mean, so much of the uh, of the kind of intellectual work um, I did. Uh, and during my undergraduate years especially was over a pint mm. uh, the more I analysed films in that way the more I wanted to do it basically So you went on to do an MA was that at Warwick as well? Or? Yeah I was a bit of a company man uh, mm. in, in those days Yeah, uh, um, I, yeah um, I, I did all of my degrees at the, at the University of Warwick partly because it was steeped in it was one of those um, film departments that was founded in that wave of film departments, which I think there was there was money from the BFI or something mm -hmm. um, supporting that in the mid to late 70s, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and the tradition that really fed into Warwick was the tradition of the British film magazine movie, mm. uh, you know, Ian Cameron, Robin Wood uh, and uh, Victor Perkins, VF Perkins. Mm. Um, and that kind of that sort of very close criticism, uh, very detailed analysis, and that kind of elevation of of Hollywood studio film, of the of the best of Hollywood studio mm. filmmaking, that recognizing it for its value. You know, it, it aspired to be the British Cahiers du Cinéma, mm -hmm. and it sure. and it and it became something else, uh, something more in tune, I think, with my own uh, with my own temperament than Cahiers. Um But yeah, and and. Uh, and that tradition fed very strongly into the kind of ethos of the department at Warwick. And I think that that was one of the major things that kind of uh, kept me there and kept me loyal to it for as long as they'd have me. Fair enough. So what was your PhD on, Pete? My PhD thesis was, um, the title of my PhD thesis was Melancholy in Hollywood Westerns, 1939 to 1962. That's a fair chunk of time to, uh, to analyse melancholy. Yeah, if so. you measure it in John Ford terms, which you absolutely should not, um, because too many people define the Western through Ford. I mean, sure. he's a, a glorious, glorious filmmaker, but um, 
a lot more to the genre than him. Yeah, if you measure it in Ford terms, it's stagecoach to the man who shot Liberty Valance. Right. Okay. Natural kind of yeah, sort of uh, yes uh, time frame. Um, and westerns are a particular interest of yours, aren't they? You came yeah. Well, you've, you've got a book out, I believe. Yeah. Well, I, I was saying before about the um, exotic appeal of Americana. Um, I could just listen to characters in westerns say place names and I would be happy that it, 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 I find it so transporting uh, that it's, it's a whole world with its own with its own logic and its own language and everything like that. But it also going back to my PhD, it's also a world that I always found infused with a very deep sadness. Mm. It's, it's a world populated by these rugged men that can't really tell you how they feel, mm. but mm. every tiny facial expression, every cast of a of a shoulder, every kind of stance, every way that they draw a gun tells you exactly how they feel. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, uh, my uh, book that was published uh, this year, uh, published in April, um, looks at more recent iterations of the Western genre, and it's called The Afterlife of the Hollywood Western. It's basically about how Hollywood Westerns have responded to their kind of new conditions of existence since since about the sort of 1980s you could go a little bit earlier than that but mm -hmm. i used kind of i used i used 1985 as my starting point because fun fact no hollywood westerns were released in 1984 it's the absolute low ebb of the genre mm -hmm. uh, where the genre r reached a level of zero briefly oh, um 85 was silverado i believe silverado and oh, pale rider so uh yes so both both larry and clint uh trying to make good that absence the following the following year um but yeah it, it's basically about how westerns have responded to not being a major mainstream genre anymore mm -hmm. what they've needed to change what they've needed to compensate how it's affected the way that they present the genre's kind of value and appeal you know uh it, if if there's always been melancholy in western uh, in westerns the level of kind of doubt as to the genre's value and and viability uh that has crept into the genre in more recent decades and is manifest in a lot of the films um is if i'm not i don't want to say unprecedented but at least kind of um notable so um the recent so yeah the afterlife of the hollywood western paul griff mcmillan get it now we're in all good bookshops <laughs> or Amazon. <laughs> Great. Let's move on to the film because Turkey Shoot. So when I first saw the title, I thought, is this like um, something to do with Ardman's or anything? But it's about as far from Ardman's as possible. Yeah, um, this ain't this ain't Chicken Run. No, this ain't Chicken Run, is it? No. So it's 1962. It's Brian Trenchard Smith who directed it. Yes. And it's one of Quentin Tarantino's um, favourite exploitation films. And well, it's one of Quentin Tarantino's favourite exploitation directors. I don't remember if... I think Tarantino has had nice things to say about Turkey Shoot. I think... Um, I seem to recall... Um, because there, there's a wonderful documentary about Ozploitation. It's called Not Quite Hollywood, um, which I'd recommend anyone to watch if you want a kind of grounding in sleazy, low-budget Australian movies. And frankly, why wouldn't you want such a thing? Um, uh, see, uh, Tarantino is a talking head in that movie uh, several times and I think the Trenchard Smith film that I, I seem to remember him praising most effusively is Dead End Drive-In and I would like to mention mm -hmm. that again a little bit later mm -hmm. uh, that's, a, that's a later Trenchard Smith film but Turkey Shoot is, um, is the one for me uh, but it certainly does it exemplifies some of the values that Tarantino likes to promote mm -hmm. Um, and, and I would say, for example, that, you know, well, I would call this a kind of, a, yeah, I'd call this exemplary low budget filmmaking. Mm. It, mm. It's an exercise in doing a lot with a little. Yes. Um, I read somewhere that the shooting schedule was cut down uh, from the original six weeks to about four weeks. And they basically right. had to figure quite a lot of what they did out on the fly. Right. And it, I mean, that's the, one of the first things I thought when I saw it was just how well they did and they made a low budget kind of work for them in that sense. So tell me, um, summarise it uh, to begin with and then we'll, we'll start exploring in a bit more depth. Yeah, um, 
Well, yeah. I, I, well, I'd like to kind of follow. Um, I, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to kind of follow that really and talk about that sort of making the low budget work, if that's mm-hmm. all right, because because it, it, it's again, it's, it's a classic exploitation thing. You've got sensationalistic material, but you've uh, you know, you've got all kinds of craziness. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of dismemberment and amputation in the movie, mm. uh, for example. Um, but the style in which the sensationalistic material is presented is actually quite matter of fact. Like, there's mm. not a lot of kind of heavy emphasis or decoration. It's all pretty functional. Mm. Like yeah. there's not much in the way of dramatic contrast of shot scale camera movement in general kind of just follows the action editing is just there for kind of suspense and spatial orientation really like um whenever i watch a film like this i I always kind of feel such relief it's so much easier to tell where everything is Mm. than it is in many kind of hollywood action movies in the past few decades where sort of fruity editing has has become de rigueur um but whereas Turkey Shoot has, for me, the look of a film that had to be shot quickly and simply, and that really, really suits the film for me. Absolutely, yeah. It is what it is, and it, it doesn't pretend to be anything else. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, I would probably describe it as a sort of dystopian, it's a dystopian um, thriller, action thriller, really. Yeah, and, with and a kind of a horror dimension to it as well, but yeah, um, but it's not as horror as some of the other films that we were possibly going to discuss until we settled on this one. Indeed. So th- I think what I found actually probably more disturbing um, was the first probably half hour of the film when it sets up the premise very effectively and very efficiently and it kicks off with um, scenes of fairly serious civil unrest from culled from newspaper, sorry, sorry, newsreel footage from all around the world and so this sort of sets up this kind of, you know, society's breaking down and then it start we start to get focus in on the you know what results from that and it's basically um, people who have been labelled deviants or criminals are rounded up by the authorities. Um, they're never actually called. It's never called the party or anything else. It's just the authorities or. Um, I think it gets society. referred to as society. Society, yeah. Which it was, I didn't. Um, yeah, there's a. And it's not clear. Yeah, Yeah, it's not clear if that is a movement, a political party, Um, given the sort of slightly sort of capitalistic suggestions as well. It Mm. might even be like a corporation or a company Mm. or something like that that sort of got in on the fascism racket. Yes. And that again is it's that's what I found really quite disturbing because it's very well done and it's it's kind of. Horribly believable too. Um, yeah. Even though this was 1982, and mm. Reagan, Reaganomics, Thatcherism was in full blast. Um, you know, in the, certainly in the, in England and America, um, this was a lot of people's fears. So. Yeah. Um, well, 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 well. Yeah. Shall we? Shall we? Uh, shall we? Uh, I was going to save the politics for later, but shall yeah, we dive yeah. dive straight in? Because um, yeah, in a way, you were talking about. Um, you're talking about the kind of the use of documentary footage at the beginning and things like that. And again, that's a, that's a sort of a classic exploitation thing. Um, you know, that, that kind of, um, cashing in on topicality that sort mm. of ripped from the headlines mm. that sort of what should we make a movie about well what's in the news what will what will get people what will get people excited or outraged. It doesn't matter as long as there's kind of bums on seats. Um, but within that style of filmmaking as well, it's the, uh, there's always that there's that dimension of freedom that allows people allows people to be a little bit more um, politically critical perhaps mm. than they could be in a film with uh, bigger uh, corporate money behind it, for example, or film w- with a desire to kind of uh, to sort of capture the mainstream and kind of uh, avoid controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Roger Corman. Uh, said to uh, said something to the effect of you can put whatever you like into these movies as long as as long as there's nudity every 50 pa- every 50 script pages yeah yeah so um so yeah exploitation films are political but they're often political in a kind of muddy uh sort of muddled inconsistent way mm. um you know uh, brian trenchard smith claims that his aim 
uh, you mentioned Reaganomics, that his aim was partly to satirise what he called the corporate fascism at the beginning of the Reagan era. Yeah, I think he does that rather effectively as well in, in places here. So, yeah. yeah, and the fairly obvious political joke in the name of, because the re-education camp has a head warden played by Michael uh, Craig, and there's an obvious political joke in his name, um, he, he is called Thatcher, and, it w and, and this joke was amplified in the film's uh, UK release, where it was released under the title Blood Camp Thatcher. Yes. So, Blood yeah, imagine, imagine seeing uh, a big box VHS arriving in your local store, you know, even your, your Kino Emporium, if you're, if you're lucky enough to, to live in, in such a magical place uh, in, the, in the early 80s called Blood Camp Thatcher. Yeah. That's, uh, um, yeah, that's a, a must-watch for, uh, for the bedsit warriors of, of the days. Um, and obviously, you know, like a lot of these kind of somewhat subversive exploitation films, you can't really praise it for its politics without qualification. And yes. perhaps we ought yes. to kind of head this off a little bit and sort of acknowledge some of the dodgier elements in Turkey Shoot. Um, um, I've got a couple of uh, species of dodge. Uh, what about what about you, sir? Um, I think the sexual politics um, are very much 1972. Um, there is some nudity, uh, which is not to be to be fair, it's not sensationalised, but there's some very unpleasant uh, attempted rape scenes, which they stop spot alert but the rapists or would-be rapists um get their comeuppance in fairly gruesome ways um, and in classic on the nose exploitation ways you know uh, oh, one of sure. one of them gets a bullet in the crotch yes uh, just and it's crippled in, in a field of, of flaming sugar cane so yeah we're, we're we're not dealing with subtlety here no and i think one of the um there's also a, a bisexual character um one of the scientist elite who she she hunts um, for sport and for pleasure she has um, a crossbow with exploding arrows and she ends up on the wrong end of one of her own exploding arrows and that's yeah you know, so yes there's, there's all, there's uh, but of course yeah the, yeah, the, the treatment of the uh, the treatment of her bisexuality um, uh, yeah th that's among I mean I, I think there's a there's a there's a definite stripe of homophobia to this oh, movie sure. that can't really be um, avoided. Yeah, yeah, the character you're referring to, Jennifer, mm. uh, played by uh, Carmen Duncan, I think is the mm. actress. Um, uh, she, she of course, commits the film's worst, albeit off-screen, sexual it assault. Is, yes, um, well, uh, and she's presented in terms of what we'd probably say some pretty offensive stereotypes of the predatory lesbian. Yeah. Um, and I would say that with his beard and his fringe and his effete tittering, mm. um, that Tito, um, her fellow jaded decadent, another one of the, the hunters, also seems to be linked to gay stereotypes, perhaps not as kind of heavy-handedly as Jennifer. Mm. But, yeah, um, in in the act of, of kind of portraying these people as decadent fascists, they're, they're also, yeah, problematically kind of coded gay. Um, and to return to the sexual violence thing, you know, I've I've seen sort of more contemporary critiques of other pop culture, um, sort of quite um, legitimately taking issue with the extent to which sexual violence is sometimes just used as a narrative device. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes just used as a source of threat or a catalyst for revenge or retribution and things like that, often on behalf of a woman even rather than by a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and while that's kind of it's a little bit in keeping with the film's throwaway tone that it's not going to dwell on the serious consequences of sexual abuse it's still a bit of a problem yes it's it it, it sits uneasily when you watch it i have to say it's sort of oh right okay um not because i think it's it feels very dated i think certainly the attitudes of 1972 are not attitudes of 2020 so if you see this folks do be warned um the um, but the, for me, the uh, the politics is also um, it's an interesting mix of uh, kind of very Orwellian slogans that the the re-education camp promote, and uh, the but there's a sort of a curious mixture of sort of fascism and communist um, flavors, I think, in that sort of sense. They're 
uh, it's not specifically anti-capitalist or anything else but there's, there's a uh, and it's also not quite this is where it's um, the the lack of budget kind of does show through and the accents are all over the place so you do have American accents you have Australian accents you have British accent or hmm. British but sort of neutral and it's you're not really quite sure where you're supposed to be so well and I'd like part to part of its strength and part of its weakness for me. But yeah, I'd like to wonderful. follow up on two parts of that actually. Yeah, sure. Partly, I think the uh, and you you kind of suggested the connection yourself, talking about the low budget. I think for me the connotations are much more strongly of fascism than of communism. But I think the communist stuff creeps in because mm. of the low budget and everything looks kind of a bit cheap and drab. <laughs> um, you know, it's not it's not bombastic enough to be Nazis, you know, no, it's, it, it's all kind of grey and downbeat and, and, and gulag-like. Yeah. Um, but I do think you're right, of course, that the accents, um, that, that, that there is some crazy, well, there, there's, there's inconsistency in the accents. And again, it's an exploitation thing. You import actors um, from elsewhere so that you can sell the film in lots of international markets. Sure. Um, at least some of the costs, so. Yes, yeah. Um, but at the same time, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that most of the bad guys are played either by British actors like Michael Craig and so on, uh, or Australian performers suppressing their accents or, or trying to go for something a little bit closer to RP. When you do hear a strine, like a proper kind of Australian accent, you know, my, my apologies to our... Um, our um, our cousins in the Antipodes, to whom I will be uh, polite and respectful at all times, except during the ashes. Um, uh, yeah, uh, when you hear that, it tends to be among the camp inmates. Uh, and I think if you combine that with some of the details in the mise en scene, uh, in the design of the movie and things like that, you, uh, you look at some of the details surrounding uh, Thatcher. His office and his quarters are decorated with African masks. Yes. You know, this, this decor style is extended into his oversized carved wooden chess set and so on. You combine that with the safari suits that he and some of the fellow hunters wear, the layout of the quarters with kind of got that wooden veranda at the front all painted white, and it all takes on this rather colonial feel. Um, and I do think that, um, that the kind of channeling of... Britishness and that kind of connotations of colonial oppressors, which, you know, although, you know, um, Australia has its own things to reckon with in its history in terms of dealing with uh, Aboriginal peoples and things like that, obviously it, it has a kind of a two sided colonial history, um, you know, that the, the British are on the wrong side of. Um, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't call this a kind of post colonial text, but it has. It has some teasing hints of that as well. You're right. There are hints there, definitely. Yeah. So there's all this stuff going on. It might just it, it might just be you know if you want if you want fascists making palms. I don't yeah, know. Well, you know it, it does lend itself rather well, especially with the, as you say the veranda, the sort of African influence, and these uh, safari suits. And there's yeah, there is a, more than a hint of um, going out on safari. In this case, a human safari. So the basic plot for once we've set up this sort of fascist re-education camp for deviants and uh, criminals and anyone who who breaks the order um it it starts to get into more sort of conventional uh sort of thr action thriller territory and you mentioned the the uh, story isn't it, it was the the most dangerous game the most dangerous game which was 1923 24 yeah the short story is that and uh, that i think it came to a lot of people's um attention through the film version in the early 30s mm -hmm. Uh, made by a lot of the people who made King Kong on a lot of the same sets. I think it was made before King Kong, but they you you can really see that there are moments in uh, in the 30s most dangerous game film with uh, Joel McRae in the leading role and Faye Ray, of course, the leading lady from uh, King Kong, yeah, play in that as well. Um, you can there there are there are setups and sets that you will see repeated in King Kong. Um, so I think that film. Uh, brought it to a lot, brought the story to a lot of people's attention and things as well. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the powerful, the privileged, might hunt the powerless, the underprivileged for sport um, it, it has, is powerful enough and 
horribly plausible enough mm. that I think it's mm. it's it's stuck around as a pop culture trope. I mean, it's right. it it even it's even echoed in a in a gladiatorial kind of oppressed versus oppressed way. You know, it's not directly um, the rich hunting the poor, but it is even echoed in you know, things like the Hunger Games. Oh, I, I thought uh, that as soon as I saw it, I thought of um, of the Hunger Games, and and also I think there was the uh, the Hunt, which is a pretty recent action film which got a, drew a lot of um, ire in America because yes, I think there were yeah. basically Trump supporters being hunted down. Which yeah, uh, I mean, and, and I, I haven't seen it, but uh, I, I, I took it to be a satire of 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 kind of liberal outrage rather than um, reaction, yeah, rather than kind of grotesque reactionary um, attitudes, although there's probably a bit of that in there, too. But, you know, uh, uh, you know, ma manufactured scandals are, are what makes the political world go round. So uh, uh, that is what it is. But no, I would be quite curious to watch The Hunt, uh, partly because I think it's it's Bloomhouse and Bloomhouse, uh, the, uh, the company, have have actually quietly developed a pretty damn good uh, record in uh, releasing qu quite interesting horror movies and thrillers mm. in the past uh, in, in the past few years. Mm. So the more sort of, uh, it's now getting to sort of action thriller territory, as I said, and there's one jarring, uh, for me anyway, which um, I think tends to uh, detract from the film uh, for me, was the introduction, introduction sorry, of a werewolf. Which, oh, Alf. Uh, yeah, oh, uh, oh, I love A-L-P-H rather than A-R-O. Yes, yes, and yes. Alf yeah, as in a Romeo rather than as in Fred Hitchcock. So um, it was rather. It was like, what the hell? And this is this uh, this creature apparently is explained. Oh, I found him in a freak show, and this is Tito's um, sort of flunky. Yeah, and, and, and he first. I think Jennifer sees him, and he's yeah. there on the veranda wearing a top hat and a waistcoat, and he yeah. tips his hat to her in a very courtly manner. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, because I think that's another thing that this type of movie is. Uh, is great for as is a sort of a launch pad for absurdity uh, you know the surrealists loved B movies uh, because they had this kind of feverish intensity to them uh, that that were they were more bound by the rules of kind of emotion than they were of logic and kind of plausibility yeah. um, and going back to what I was saying about the film's style um, I really think that the kind of not dryness, but the kind of the the sort of basic functionality of the style, when you marry it to this absurdity, and I think the absurdity is um, crystallized most wonderfully in Alf. Mm. Uh, it gives the film a kind of a deadpan quality. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a moment where Alf rips the toe off a man's foot, yeah. pops it in his mouth, and crunches it like a pork scratching. Yeah. Now, the film doesn't need to tell us that this is a bizarre and appalling act. This is obvious. And the eating of the toe is given no special emphasis. It happens in this very conventionally framed, very standard two shot, which then tilts up to follow Alf and Tito when they stand up from their victim. Uh, and, you know, even even this is just entirely functional. The camera movement just follows the characters. And you've been presented by this, yeah, you're presented with this um, obscene act uh, um, yeah, in the most matter-of-fact way possible. And for me, it's not the matter-of-factness, it's not the obscenity, it's what they do to each other. It's, it's that kind of interaction, it's the telling, the telling of the gag absolutely deadpan. Um, that that's what what makes this uh, what makes this work uh, for me. Uh, also, we should um, acknowledge Alf, uh, played by the uh, great Australian pro wrestler Steve Crusher Rackman, uh, who also played uh, the the role of was his name Donk or something like that in Croc in the Crocodile Dundee films. He's oh. Mick Dundee's big mate in those movies. He kisses, I think, doesn't he? And then, yeah, okay, well, that's, that does uh, that rings a bell. He's he's under a lot of kind of um, uh, I was a teenage werewolf prosthetics there. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. So or maybe is, just uh, grew his sideburns out that weekend. I don't indeed. know. Indeed, yes. There's a lot. There's a, a fair bit of uh, um, uh, there's the uh, his lenses and his eyes are quite. Uh, you know, they get about two or three close-ups, which are quite uh, creepy. 
so it kind of resolves itself and I think the ending um, is an interesting one in that it gets us it gets slightly literary and again spoiler alert the uh, the hunter become the um, the hunted become the hunters and they come back to the camp and liberate their fellow deviants and things and overthrow the old order and it ends um, quite crisply quite efficiently with a quote from HG Wells of all people oh yes I'd forgotten about that yes and it says revolution begins with the misfits which I thought that's really interesting this is a kind of a cut above your normal exploitation film it sort of gets uh, and so the, this political message is kind of it's carried on right through the sort of film it sort of wavers slightly I think in places but there is this kind of uh, undercurrent of of, a, of political awareness and I think it's yeah this definitely I think it places it it's probably in a different category to a lot of other um, sort of sex and blood and uh, yeah I mean uh, 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 yeah, c- come come for the political satire stay for the men being bulldozed in half indeed yes which is um, quite a scene yeah, yeah that, that that's that that's that's the that's the line for the the t-shirt by the way yeah. um I, i'm assuming you're merching the hell out of these podcasts oh well you know there's a there's a t-shirt range we've got um you know there's uh, we've got a few things planned uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it wouldn't be an emporium otherwise well you um, know, it's the conclusion of the title so yeah yeah absolutely but yeah, I, I mean, but I, I think, in a way, what what are exploitation filmmakers but misfits? <laughs> they're kind of, yeah. they're weirdos nibbling away at the edges, making making ridiculous movies for tiny amounts of money. Mm. I mean, I know there is a romanticised way of thinking about it, um, and in a way, uh, a a reasonably woke individual uh, might respond to my romanticization by saying what do you mean they're misfits they're a bunch of white men uh which is also of course true um you know uh but again there is the the tension between the margins and the mainstream is what makes exploitation film both deeply problematic and also fascinating and strangely enjoyable too yeah, so, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, because yeah. they traffic in they traffic in the familiar, but also in in different in different kinds of the surprising. Mm. Going back to the reception of this film, um, it's just on Wikipedia now, and there's some great. These are um, I have to take these with a pinch of salt, but Joel Baltake, Baltake, who wrote for the Philadelphia Daily News, gave the film a negative review, describing it as, and I quote, a vomitous offering and unfit for human consumption um the archon beacon journal called the film garbage uh with along with wooden acting and uh, the australian film critic david stratton uh, apparently condemned the film as a catalogue of sickening horrors adding that the actors involved should be should have been ashamed for appearing in such trash now this well is I, c- I can imagine that a um a respectable um australian uh critic would not want their national cinema to be represented uh, by such things if they are if they are cons- if they are focusing on respectability. Mm. Um, but I can't help but think that um, yeah that, that sort of criticizing an exploitation film uh, um, for being in poor taste is like criticizing a banana for being yellow. Yeah. It's it, it's sort of yeah, yeah sure and. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it almost in a lot of cases with the reception of films like that you can kind of see that they are they're criticizing the category not the film mm. they're criticizing the film for existing at all mm. you know for for being for being a cheaply made film full of nudity and gore yeah. rather than for being this cheaply made film full of nudity <laughs> and gore and i know I, I sound like such a kind of pompous film academic uh insisting on the particularity of the cheaply made film um full of nudity and gore but that's my hill and i'm gonna die on it damn it well film inc magazine rescues this by uh, stating that versions of the classic story most dangerous game appear at least once a decade uh, this was australia's 10ba version directed with great pace by brian trenchard smith and featuring an excellent cast and perhaps australian cinema's most notable werewolf which i think is fair comment 
Uh, yeah, uh, 10BA, by the way, refers to the Australian tax exemption mm. uh, that a lot of these B-movies were made under in the, in the, in the period. Mm. Um, excellent cast, I, I think I, I would absolutely agree with. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we were talking before. Yeah. We were talking before about, um, about the imported names uh, that you, d you put into your exploitation movie to sell it abroad. So you've got Eliz Olivia Hussey, as Chris, who's one of the new inmates at the uh, re-education camp that gets introduced at the beginning. So, of course, Hussey played Juliet for Zeffirelli in the 60s Romeo and Juliet. Worked with Zeffirelli again, playing the Virgin Mary in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and I really love this, putting a refined British actress in there, because it perfectly, the character has that kind of scared, I shouldn't be here, quality you know her accent her manner marks her as belonging to the world of the wardens and the elite not the world of the prisoners and the deviants and the underdogs and the implication there seems to be that she was previously part of the establishment that she may have turned a blind eye to the fascist regime maybe even supported it but has got caught up in its machinery by virtue of her kind of compassion you know she's kind to a man that was being chased by the police by beaten by the police and just runs into her in a shop and that's enough for her to get arrested and shipped away mm. um but there's also some really um uh, some really great australian actors in there mm. um you know you've got an american actor you've got steve rails back and he's a serviceable leading man as paul he's fine but among the kind of sympathetic tough guys the more interesting character for me is the character of griff mm -hmm. uh um who's the guy that that sort of rigs the Vietnam style traps and things in the jungle. Mm -hmm. And he's played by Bill Young, who's an Australian character actor who would later have small roles in The Matrix and the Baz Luhrmann Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. And he was also in a later Ozploitation film, I think a 90s Ozploitation film called Body Melt, alongside Ian Smith um, or Harold Bishop from Neighbours, as we might <laughs> oh, also know him. Okay. Um, but Bill Young as Griff is wonderful. He makes him a convincing badass, but what I really like about him is he's got this kind of weary, resigned quality. You know, he, re he plays it very well as a strong man that's been worn down by hardship. And I, just one more, while I'm holding forth about actors, one more I want to mention is uh, Roger Ward, Australian character actor, seen a lot of low-budget movies from the period. I think he's in the original Mad Max. Mm -hmm. uh, and he plays Ritter, the chief guard. Oh, and he's tall, yes. bald-headed, he's got that yeah. big moustache. And he looks like a circus strongman, yeah, but he's kind of got the mannerisms of a demented yeah. drill sergeant. Yeah, he's a scary. Uh, it's just such an excellent B-movie character. You know, he plays it as a cartoonish sadist mm -hmm. um, that we want to see get his comeuppance, and he gets both his hands macheted off on a beach. Yeah, and well-deserved as well. There's some excellent him holding, you know, Roger Ward holding his hands in, in his, very obviously in his cuffs under some fake yes. blood, uh, which really just adds, adds to it for me. It does. It does indeed. It's is towards the end. And, uh, yeah. So there's a kind of a sort of, sort of happy ending in that the, uh, the camp uh, is liberated and they get away. Um, and they call in an airstrike they on the camp, so the fascists end up bombing themselves. Yes, they thought Camp Forty Seven is is out of control. So, and the um, I would say this is definitely going into the window. I wasn't sure at first, but having discussed it with you, and yeah, the there is a there is an intelligence I think to the whole setup and the premise of this, which I think it does it does run through, and it's I think it's an interesting film. So yes, this yeah. is definitely going into. I, 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 I think there's an attention to detail in this film mm, that considering totally. it was done in such a hurry uh, is, 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 is very much to its credit. Mm, um, yeah. I've only seen a couple of films by Brian Trenchard Smith, but they really do seem to show that kind of attention to little bits of detail that add texture and interest. Uh, I mentioned Dead End Drive-In before, which is, I say, a big favourite of Quentin Tarantino's. That I think that really showcases its design much more as a, as a key feature. You know, mm -hmm. the sets in that film are wonderful. There's probably more to look at than there is in Turkey Shoot, but I don't think that Dead End Drive-In is quite as sharp or as lean um, as Turkey Shoot. So that's the Trenchard Smith film uh, for me. Uh, another lovely detail, just to, to talk about the details that uh, Trenchard Smith uses. Well, there's a couple of lovely details in costume. 
um, there's the glasses that the character Dodge, who's the guy who ends up getting his toe ripped off, yeah, wears really in the first half of his movie. And they're, they're, yeah, proper. And they, they magnify his eyes so they kind of bulge grotesquely, which gives a wonderful little visual signature to his character in the early part of the movie. And the other little bit of costuming I really like um, is the hat that uh, Jennifer, we were talking about her problematic portrayal earlier, mm. that she wears on the hunt. Because it's that sort of horse riding helmet, mm -hmm. but it's got a black veil in the front, so it's kind of one part <laughs> Jim Carner and one part femme fatale. Oh, yes. it, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's like she's sort of the, the black widow of dressage. Mm -hmm. so um, she rides a horse in it. She doesn't drive a vehicle, which she doesn't do, but she sort of, there's this kind of sense of lady of the manor type thing, which kind of makes it all the more, all the more chilling. So out of the out of the sort of the four evil characters, I would say for me she's probably the nastiest character. So yeah, yeah, because yeah, you've got you've got a, a sort of a a cold bureaucrat and a couple of sort of decadent stereotypes, mm. like a, a, stere a stereotype fat decadent and a stereotype camp decadent. Mm. Uh, neither of them particularly enlightened uh uses of tropes here and yeah as we say jennifer is problematic but carmen duncan gives such kind of malevolent life to the mm. character and the details with the crossbow the horse the costume uh the makeup the rest of it um yeah it it, it gives it gives you something that really that really stands out uh, even even if some of it is a little politically dubious absolutely Pete, thank you so much for your time and your, your thoughts on Turkey Shoot. So that was Turkey Shoot from 1982. I'm Trenchard Smith. Um, also, Not Quite Hollywood, uh, which is one of the key uh, documentaries about exploitation. Definitely worth checking out as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the guy who made that um, also made very interesting documentaries about the 80s film company Canon Films. Uh, that film's called Electric Boogaloo and made a film about Filipino exploitation cinema called Machete Maidens Unleashed. All of these documentaries are, are very worth... Um, the pro they're very much worth seeking out. The problem I have when I watch these documentaries is that I start them with a curious mind and I end, end them with a 20-film shopping list. <laughs> <laughs> you have been warned. <laughs> Pete, thank you so much for coming to Info and it's been great speaking to you. And Always a pleasure, we will, sir. We will no doubt see you in the future with perhaps another choice because you, you did present me with some other very interesting choices. Um, Absolutely. Uh, uh, or we could pick something uh, We could pick something very different out. We could, uh, we could do something all serious next time if you wanted. Yeah, no problem at all. But we won't take it too seriously. Indeed. No, never, never take a film too seriously. Yeah. Thanks very much indeed. And thank on. you. was Dr. Pete Falconer, a senior lecturer at Bristol University, with Turkey Shoot from 1982, Brian Trenchard-Smith. So, thank you very much indeed for listening. Uh, we'd like to send a shout out to all of our listeners, um, the ones in Italy, the ones in France, the ones in America, and of course the ones in England. Uh, thank you guys uh, for so much for listening. It does make it uh, really uh, um, gratifying to see every week who has been tuning in. If you wish to uh, put forward a film yourself, you'd be most welcome. I can guarantee that it will be considered. I can't guarantee that it will be discussed. But the email address is drkinosfilmemporium at gmail.com. drkinosfilmemporium at gmail.com. Write in, let us know how, you get, how you're getting on, whether you like the show, what you'd like to see, and yeah, maybe hear from you soon. All the best and take care. Bye. <laughs>